Well, we've spent the last six weeks looking at the inside of the tabernacle and the wonders of what God has promised to his people there um, through building of, of this, this strange tent. Inside the tabernacle uh, was very intentionally designed by God to be this beautiful picture of what a fully restored relationship with him would be like. It was a promise that, that he would be with them, and, and when he was with them, he would cover their sin, that he wanted to have this table fellowship with them, as he shows in this, the table of the showbread, that he would be their light and their life, as he shows in the golden lampstand, that he would be uh, delighted by their prayers, as he shows in the, um, the altar of incense. The tabernacle was this picture of, of what every heart longs for, it's peace with God. Today we, we step outside of the tabernacle and ask the question, how do you get there? If that's where God dwells, above the atonement cover, inside the Holy of Holies, in the innermost part of the tabernacle, surrounded by all of these rich promises, I want to be there. How do I get there? How do we approach the presence of the Lord? And it's significant that you didn't just go waltzing up to the tabernacle any old way you pleased. This morning I want to look at three different pieces that stood between the people of Israel and the tabernacle. Look at the courtyard of the tabernacle, the bronze altar, and the bronze basin. As you can imagine, um, we have a fair bit of text to cover this morning, so bear with me as we read. Um, turn in your Bibles to uh, Exodus 27, and we'll begin looking at the tabernacle courtyard. And when we talk about the, the building of the courtyard, more specifically what we're talking about is the building of this wall made of curtains and pillars similar to the tabernacle itself. And let's take a look, Exodus 27, starting in verse 9. It says this, You shall make the court of the tabernacle out of the south side of the court, shall have hangings of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length, on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty, and their bases twenty of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court of the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits, with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front of the east side of the tabernacle shall be fifty cubits, the hangings for the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits with their three pillars and three bases. And on the other side, the hangings shall be fifteen cubits with their three bases and or three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court there shall be a screen, twenty cubits long, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, 
and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze, all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you um, that it that it gives us a picture of, of who you are and what it is to be with you, what it means to have your presence with us. God, I pray as we look this morning that you would um, open our eyes to see, to see your glory, to see the wonder of who you are, to see uh, your beauty, and God, to see uh, what you have communicated in this courtyard and the altar and the basin. Lord, that our eyes would be open to see the richness and the wonder and the beauty of your gospel afresh today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So these are the instructions of how to build the wall of curtains around the courtyard of the tabernacle. I have a picture of what the, the tabernacle looked like. It's this rank, rectangular yard. A cubit is about a foot and a half, and so the, the courtyard is 150 feet by 75 feet, uh, and the, the wall is seven and a half feet tall. The curtains were made of fine twined linen. The long sides had 20 pillars and 20 bases made from bronze, and then it talks about um, the, these hooks and these fillets. The, the hooks is what would have hung the curtains. Um, I needed help with fillets. I don't know what a fillet is, and uh, it seems like it is a little bit vague. It's a little open to interpretation. Other translations use the word bands. Uh, it seems to me that this is a, a long, thin rod that one would run horizontal from one pillar to the next, and the curtain uh, would hang from this fillet. And the whole thing is held up uh, using pegs and ropes like the fly of a tent. Now notice... Inside the tabernacle, closer to the Holy of Holies, was all gold and silver. And now, out further on the outside, it's mostly bronze with a little bit of silver. The inside of the tabernacle was a sacred place. It was pure and holy. Only the priests entered there. The courtyard is less so. This is where people came regularly. This is where the work was done. Um, bronze is much more practical than it is precious. The west wall was the same as the north and the south, only half as long. But on the east side, it split into three parts. There are three pillars and two panels of curtains on the either side. And in the middle was a screen, 30 feet wide, a curtain. This was the entrance to the tabernacle. Now, the screen, the, the door, as it were, is, is not just fine twine linen like the rest of it, but was also blue and purple and scarlet yarns and embroidered with needlework. Sound familiar? The gate resembles the curtains on the inside of the tabernacle. It's a glimpse into what is ahead. It's saying this is the way to the presence of the Lord. So those are the instructions for building this courtyard. Um, let me flip over to Exodus chapter 38, and we'll see um, the obedience to it, the, the building of it. 
Exodus 38, starting in verse 9. And he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillar and their fillets were of silver. And for the north side were the hangings of a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks and the pillars and the fillets were of silver. And for the west side, there were hangings of fifty cubits, their ten pillars and their ten bases, the hooks and the pillars and the fillets were of silver. And for the front to the east, fifty cubits, the hangings for one side of the gate were fifteen cubits with their three pillars and their three bases, and so for the other side. On both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of fifteen cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twine linen, and the bases for the pillars were bronze, but the hooks and the pillars of their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals was also of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver. And the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It was twenty cubits long and five cubits high in its breadth, corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number, their four bases of, of bronze, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver." And all the pegs of the tabernacle, the court, were all of bronze. So once again, um, they did all the Lord had asked. And if you're wondering, why, why read this? It's, it's almost verbatim. Why go through this over and over again? Uh, well, because God wrote it. Because God wrote it in detail uh, a second time, reminding us of the significance of the details of obedience, that he demands that this is to be made exactly how he commanded, and that mattered. This building process here, again, is, is just about verbatim, except this time there is an oddity. Verse 17, um, the building process speaks of capitals made of silver. That was a cap on top of the pillar, and, and that... Um, seems to come out of nowhere. It, it kind of confused me the first time I saw it. I didn't see that commanded. Now I see it built. Uh, most commentators say that was just kind of assumed in chapter 27. It didn't need to be said. That was just part of making pillars, was so they have to have a capital. Um, maybe it's wrapped up in this word fillet. That it, was to, it was a broader term, perhaps. Um, now, it would have been a big deal if it had not been what God commanded, if they had strayed from the command from the instructions but but chapter 39 verse 42 right at the very end of the entire building process it says that as the lord commanded so they had done it it says they obeyed it said they did what they were supposed to and so this wasn't a surprise to moses but it kind of threw me off i wanted to mention it whatever it is it, it seems to be in line with what they were commanded but the bigger picture begs the question what is god communicating to his people through this courtyard. What does this mean for us? And I want to start with a bit of a rabbit trail, kind of a secondary application, I think. Uh, for one thing, we see how God loves corporate worship. We get so caught up in personal worship. It's just between me and God. It's my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and in North America, we, we focus on that to, to the exclusion of everyone else. But in Israel... Their worship happened in the courtyard. 
That was it. That's where they worshiped together with their families, with their communities. They would bring sacrifices in, and many of the sacrifices they brought, they would then sit together and eat in the courtyard, worshiping together. God highly values the gathering together for worship of his people. That's, that's part of how he designed it, and that's true in the church. It's this right here, the saints gathered together. This matters. That's certainly something we can take away. Don't, don't neglect the meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing. Make gathering with the saints for worship a priority in your life. It's a priority to God. This matters. But as we step back and ask, what is God teaching on a larger scale? Um, we, we've talked about this. We know that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God making promises about his presence, being with his people, promises that were ultimately fulfilled in, in Jesus. How does the courtyard fit into that? What does the courtyard communicate about the presence of God? And, and that, that process of, of, of seeing these Old Testament commands and seeing how they relate to Christ, that's called typology. And, and as I've been working through these passages, um, I've been learning myself how to, how to do that well. How to see Christ in the Old Testament. And, and we talked a few times about there are people that get really carried away with typology. Um, they, they, they run down these rabbit trails and into, into the, the weeds of the, of the details there are people who talk about how each of the arms of the lampstand represents a different age in, in the history or in, the, in the, the process of redemptive history. Or they look at each of the, the petals on the flowers on the arms of the lampstand and, and somehow speculate how many petals on each flower and they count them up and they say, look, it corresponds to all the books of the Bible. And, and it sounds so impressive. Another commentator talked about the... Um, the tent pegs and how they're, they're half buried and just like Jesus was dead but then came out of the grave and how they're made of bronze like Jesus was not, the, the bronze wouldn't rot and that symbolized how Jesus would never sin and they have all these details and all these moving parts and it's so complex. But let me just give you a helpful rule that, that I've been learning that I think uh, is a good, solid guide. If it's not staring you in the face obvious... It's probably not what God intended to teach. So many people go down these, these rabbit holes and it, and it just starts to look like a, this conspiracy theory with all these moving pieces and we stand back and we go, wow, how did, how did they ever see all of that in this tabernacle or in, this, in these Old Testament passages? And, and I think if we're asking that question, wow, how did they see it? It's maybe a good indication for us to stop and say, maybe it's not there. How did they get from A to B that it seems like such a big jump? Maybe it's too big of a jump. You see, God wrote Scripture, and He weaved in this, this typology for the average Israelite to see these promises that he's making. And, and for the average Christian to be able to pick up their Bible and read and see Jesus in the Old Testament, God didn't write in code. 
He, it's not a secret hidden message that you need, you know, special glasses or some decoder to figure out. He set out to teach average Israelites and average Christians about himself. So just look for what's there. What's right on the face of it? How does this fit into the bigger picture of Scripture? How does it pick up on and, and build on key themes already running through the Bible? And, and, and I think good typology, you, you don't see it and then say, wow, how did he get there? You see it and you go, oh, how did I miss that? It's so obvious. It's right there. So looking at this courtyard, I think it's as simple as this. There's one gate. There is a wall around the tabernacle. There is one way in toward the presence of the God. It's, it's the presence of the Lord. It's saying, come through the gate. The tabernacle. It's where the Lord dwells. It's His presence. And you can't just come up to Him any way you choose. You have to come through the gate. It's such a popular idea in our world today. You can come to God any way you choose. All religions are essentially leading to the same place. I'll do my thing, you do yours. No one has the right to say that their way to God is better, that their way is the only way. And they're right. They're right. No one has the right to say that. I don't have the right to tell you that there's only one way to God. I am totally out of line to tell you that my way to God is the best way, that, that anyone else should go my way to God. But that's not what's happening here. This isn't about anyone going my way. This is about everyone going God's way. He does, in fact, have the right to tell people how they can or cannot come to Him. And He is very clear. There is one way. And there's no surprise here. This is pointing to Jesus. There's one way to enter the presence of the Lord, and it's Jesus. John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 14, 6, you know it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one entrance into the tabernacle. One entrance into the presence of God, and Jesus is that entrance. And the reason that there's one way to God becomes very clear the moment you walk through that front gate. And you're confronted by a large bronze altar with a fire burning inside and an animal on top. It stood in the path of every worshiper, every person who wanted to approach God was faced with the reality that approaching God required a sacrifice. The courtyard calls out, come through the entrance. The altar calls us, be covered by the sacrifice. Let's take a closer look at this bronze altar. We read about it in Exodus, uh, we will read about it, Exodus 27, um, Verses 1 to 8. 27, starting in verse 1. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, 
and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans, and you shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings and four corners and you shall set it under the ledge of the pole of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar and you shall make the poles for the altar poles of acacia wood and overlay them with bronze and the poles shall be put through the rings and the the poles on the two sides of the altar when it is carried and you shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown to you on the mountain so it shall be made There is this picture uh, of the altar. It was to be made of acacia wood, overlaid with bronze. And uh, it was large. This altar is seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. It's square and four and a half feet tall. That makes it the biggest uh, piece in the whole tabernacle complex. It's a, a large piece of furniture here. And the altar uh, has horns on four corners, much like the altar of incense had. Um, the purpose of that is ultimately unclear. And it had a grating inside, uh, about halfway down this, this network of, of bronze, this bronze mesh. And, and so the fire would burn underneath. You'd put the, the wood in underneath. And, and when you put the sacrifice in the altar, it would sit on this grating lifted up off of the wood and yet the flames around it and they were to make tools for the altar pots shovels basins forks fire pans all out of bronze and like the other pieces it was to be moved by poles attached by rings so let me read now uh, the the building of the tabernacle if we flip ahead again to exodus 38 this time looking at verses 1 to 7 he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, five cubits was its breadth. It was square, and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze, and he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. He made all the utensils of bronze, and he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze under its ledge extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze, and he put the poles through the rings on the side of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards." So that's the altar. But we can't really understand the altar uh, unless we understand what's happening on the altar. And for that, um, we look at Exodus 29. I want to look at verses 38 to 46. Exodus 29, starting in verse 48, uh, 38. Sorry. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other you shall offer at twilight. And the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mixed with 
fourth of a hin of beaten oil and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So, twice a day, Every day they were to offer a young lamb. Uh, specifically, the Hebrew word here uh, is a young male lamb. They, they had careful terminology. And, and the other things to be offered here basically rounded out this meal. Uh, about two liters of flour mixed with a liter of oil to make a kind of dense bread. And then about a liter of wine as a drink offering. And, and this was to be a regular burnt offering to the Lord. Done at the entrance of the tent the way into the place where God would meet them. This altar, as you walked in the front gate of the tabernacle, was a gruesome, offensive sight. A place of fire and blood and burning flesh. It was ugly, messy, smelly, disgusting. That was no coincidence. That was no accident that was an intentional vivid picture of what god had said right from the beginning sin demands death he told adam in the garden of eden the day you eat from that tree the day you disobey me you will surely die after that sin they tried to cover up their shame with fig leaves God came and he killed an animal and he covered them with its skin. Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices to the Lord. Cain offered the produce from the field. Abel offered a lamb from his flock. And the Lord was pleased with Abel's offering and not with Cain's. Sin demands Death. And so Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's sin that separates us from God, and the wages of sin is death. And so coming to the tabernacle, coming to the presence of God, was only possible through that one door and through the altar where the animal was put to death. The flames are symbolic of the wrath of God and His judgment. The brutal death and the burning of the Lamb reminded them that is what my sin deserved. That is what is necessary that I might be made right with God. And of course, again, this is no surprise, by the altar, God was pointing forward. It was never about those sacrifices. A dead lamb doesn't truly cover human sin. It was never intended to. But, but in offering those sacrifices, they were trusting that God would deal with their sin. That there, would, that there would be one day a sacrifice 
in their place that would be sufficient. It was an act of faith, trusting in God. Isaiah 53 continued to point forward to that day. Verses 4 to 6, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then, when John the Baptist looked up in John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our sacrifice. His death as the Lamb of God on the cross, subjected to the wrath of God that we deserve, was the ultimate sacrifice that actually dealt with sin, that actually paid the penalty that we deserve. The altar reminds us of what is right at the heart of the sacrifice of Jesus. Let me get theological on you for a moment here um, for you nerds get your pens ready uh, the, the, the 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 proper term here is penal substitutionary atonement three parts penal means that there's a, a penalty to be paid the wages of sin is death there's a price to be paid Penal substitutionary. Substitutionary speaks of Jesus as our substitute, that that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In my place condemned he stood. Penal substitutionary atonement. Atonement meaning that 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 substitute for our penalty is how God atoned for, how he covered and made right our sin. And there are many today with whom that does not sit well. The idea of punishment and and wrath of God as a substitute are increasingly unpopular ideas. They would say "These these are archaic. This is outdated. This is ruthless, even barbaric. What kind of God is this? They would argue, no, God is a God of love. The cross was simply a display of his love. It has nothing to do with wrath. What kind of God do you think this is? Or they would say that that it's not an actual penalty to be paid. Or that's just God coming down to kind of speak our language. He's just just acting it out that that he's bringing us together. That that's how much he loves us. It's not that there was actual punishment to be experienced and in so doing they gut the god of the bible they focus exclusively on his love and they remove his righteousness his justice his holiness and quite simply they speak they they cease to speak of the one true god And they begin to speak of a false God, a God that they have created out of their own minds to suit the sensibilities of their own culture. It's not who God has revealed himself to be. 
And at the same time, they elevate man, downplaying, minimizing the seriousness of our sin, the reality of what it deserves, as if what we need is not not salvation from judgment, just merely an example to follow. We just need a bit of of a helping hand, a nudge in the right direction. But this theme, running all through Scripture, of a sacrificial death, paying our penalty in our place is indispensable to Christianity. Make no mistake. Yes, Jesus' death was a display of God's love. Yes, it was to some extent an example for us to follow. But a Christianity without a penal substitutionary atonement, without Jesus dying in our place for the penalty of our sin, diminishes God, elevates man, and ceases to be Christianity at all reality is our sin is no small thing. It demands death. Not only physical, but eternal death. The wrath of God in hell forever. Our obedience, our our disobedience and, and rebellion against God is worse than we could ever possibly imagine. But God's grace in coming down himself in the form of a man to take the penalty on himself that we deserve to completely absorb the wrath reserved for us is infinitely more glorious than we could possibly imagine. And to diminish the reality of sin and what it deserves is to diminish the holiness, the grace, and the glory of God. But to understand the ugliness of sin, to stare in the face the wrath that we deserve is to uphold God's character, to begin to see the wonder of his grace. And so the altar and the cross are not just statements, they're also a call. A call to repentance. They confront the sinner with the ugly reality of sin and declare in bold, blood-red ink, you may not approach God without a substitute. Your sin must be dealt with. You must admit your guilt and your need and come through the altar, or you cannot come at all. If you will not confess your sin acknowledging the horror of it and the wrath that it deserves by coming to Christ as a substitute, then you cannot approach God. And that sin not placed on the substitute will remain on you and the wrath it deserves will be meted out on you for eternity. Oh, praise God, He made a way. He devised in eternity past, before the first sin had even been committed, a plan for the display of His glorious grace and the wonder of the cross in this substitutionary sacrifice. Oh, come to Him in repentance through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Come through the single gate beyond the bloodied, fiery altar, and then to the wash basin. This third and final piece that we'll look at this morning, a large bowl filled with pure, 
clean water, declaring that we're to come through the gate, covered by the sacrifice, and then cleansed by the washing. Exodus 30 tells of the instructions for the wash basin, starting in verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, You shall make a basin of bronze and its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put between the tent of the meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, that they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. And then just briefly in Exodus 38, 8, he made the wash basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So having come past the altar, with blood and soot and the stench. Standing between the altar and the tent of meeting is this bronze wash basin. We don't know its size, its shape, anything about it really, only that the priests were to wash in it that they may not die. That's strong wording. For a sinful creature to enter the presence of God is absolute suicide. It's darkness approaching perfect light. It's a droplet of water entering the core of the sun. Though by His grace God has deferred His wrath, God does not tolerate sin. The altar is a picture of what is called propitiation. It's God's wrath against sin being satisfied. The penalty paid. The wash basin is a picture of what is called expiation, whereby sin is taken away. The stain of guilt and the shame of sin is washed clean. This is the, the application of the altar. It's the full effect of the sacrifice. It's in, in some ways can be seen as you know, two sides of the same coin. God doesn't just pay our penalty. He expunges it from our record. It's as if it never happened, as if we had never sinned. We, we come to God filthy from sin, stained and marred beyond recognition. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even my good days... My best days are like a polluted garment and I'm sorry to, to push the edge of what is appropriate, but we need to get this picture. The language of Isaiah 64 is not vague. The polluted garment that he speaks about is a soiled menstrual cloth. That's the purity of my good days of holiness in comparison to the presence of the Lord. And if that's what my righteousness is like before Him, how repulsive is my sin? 
The penalty for sin is one thing, but the filth of sin is altogether another. We seek to come into His pristine, perfect white holiness, dripping with the sewage of our sinfulness. We desperately need not only to be forgiven, but to be washed. And God, by the bronze wash basin in the courtyard of the tabernacle, is promising to do just that. And it's a promise that that runs throughout Scripture. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Micah 7 says that He casts our sin into the depths of the sea. Isaiah 38 says He puts all of our sin behind His back. What grace. What an unbelievable gift. Do you know that cleansing? Have you by faith come to the altar, confessed your sin, had your punishment wiped out and your sin washed clean? If you have not, the guilt and filth of sin are still yours. But if you have come, if you've trusted in Christ as your sacrifice, come to Him in repentance and faith. You need to know this. You need to to understand this. You have been washed. Titus 3, 3 3-5, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, uh, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another. Sound familiar to anyone else? Anyone else remember that life? But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared, He saved us, not by works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We are washed by what is called regeneration. Regeneration is a a recreation right at the core of who you are. If if you're a, a player of video games, you get this concept, right? Your character dies. He's He's killed. And that version of your character with all of its damage that's accumulated is gone. And if you're lucky, if you have more lives, you what? You regenerate a new you. Full, fresh start, full health, full shields. He just appears. I remember as a teenager butchering chickens with my parents. And and my job um, was to reach inside and to bring all of the insides of the chicken to the outside. It's a messy job. And there was something about that smell of raw chicken guts. And especially if you did it poorly and you broke things that you should not be breaking. And after 10 hours of hundreds of chickens, that smell just doesn't come off. You, you wash your hands, you bleach, you, you disinfect, you scrub the outside. But the next morning when you wake up, the smell of chicken guts under your fingernails You don't want to eat finger foods for breakfast. Sometimes washing isn't enough. 
Sometimes that residue remains. But the washing of regeneration, oh, that's not, that's not a scrubbing of the surface. This goes so much deeper. This is a complete fresh start. It's right at the root of who you are. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. And listen, 1 Corinthians 6.9 begins with this list of sins that both turns our stomach while at the same time incriminating us. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is us. The unrighteous, the filthy rag ones who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And these next words are everything. Listen carefully. And such were some of you. Past tense. Past tense, that's who you were. Implication, that's who you are no longer. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Wretched, filthy sinner is no longer your identity. That is not who you are. You've been made new. You've been washed. You've been cleansed at the core of your being an amazing gift and then the call Romans 6 4 we who are buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life you've been cleansed that's the the picture here is another metaphor of of regeneration of this washing in the waters of baptism that old me is dead and gone he's buried with christ there's a new me a regenerate washed me so now live walk in newness of life don't let guilt from your past sins leave you feeling shame leave you feeling stained or marred that God, has, that God has washed that away. Guilt is not a, a feeling, right? Guilt, we, we say, oh, I feel guilty. You know, guilt is a legal reality. And if you're in Christ, you are not guilty. But then as we walk in newness of life by by living as that new creation that we are. And that's the, that's the context of Romans 6. It, it calls us to, to continue in it. Right? That's where it begins. It says, should we, should we keep on sinning that grace may abound? No, by no means. No, you're a new creation. So live in this newness of life. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I don't know about you, but I find that command a little tricky. Standing in forgiveness, even having been washed and made new, my sin continues to linger periodically. I go back to old habits, to old ways of thinking. I find patterns of thinking and acting inside myself that are not God-honoring. It's been a rough week for me, seeing some things in my heart that I don't like there things that I know have hurt 
people around me that, that I need to deal with, that I need to, to get to the, the bottom of this. It's crushing. It's painful. And yet even in that struggle, as I fight to walk in newness of life, the altar and the wash basin still stand. The cross and the washing of regeneration are still true of me. I need to continue to put that old man to death. But it is so sweet this week to be reminded again of the grace and the wonder of the gospel. And I need that. We all need that. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why Jesus said, until I come, keep doing this. Keep being reminded that my body was broken for you. That my blood was poured out to wash you white as snow. As we prepare for communion, let me remind us who this is for. This is for repentant believers. If you're not a believer this morning, if you've not put your trust in Jesus, if you've not thrown yourself on His mercy and given yourself to Him completely, this is not for you. Just let it pass. That's okay. Just watch. Or if you would call yourself a believer, but you're not walking in repentance today. There are sins in your life that you're holding on to that you will not confess and, and give up. And, and this is different. I'm not talking about sins that you're, you're struggling with and are repenting of and fighting against, but sins that you're holding on to. Maybe bitterness and unforgiveness towards somebody. Paul warns that it would not be safe for you to take communion. That, that coming to the cross, being reminded again of the grace of God in this sacred practice of communion while holding on to unrepentant sin deliberately is inviting God's severest discipline that, that many are sick and have even died. Repent. Set your heart right before the Lord and then partake. But let's come as those who were once the guiltiest of criminals, deserving of judgment, the filthiest of sinners with no place in God's holiness and remember what it means to have come through the door that is Jesus, to come through the altar of the cross where the penalty of our sin was paid and through the bronze basin where the filthiest of sinners have been washed white as snow.